Tuesday, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Jacob Blake is a father. He has perhaps a growing collection of dad jokes, a birth story for each of his three sons, and most important, a deep reservoir of black family history to pass down to them. He likely had a gift picked out for his eldest son's August 23rd birthday celebration, which should have been the highlight of the weekend. Maybe Blake even had a bedtime tuck routine that would have ended that Sunday on a loving note. Those are the opening words of a new piece in The Atlantic, written by Alyssa Richardson. The title of the piece is The Problem with Police Shooting Videos. In it, Richardson makes the argument that the viral sharing of police brutality videos, like the ones circulating involving Jacob Blake, are not just counterintuitive to celebrating the humanity of black lives, but that they are also damaging to a more holistic understanding of people of color. It reduces them to just victims of systemic racism and violence. That's where we want to spend the hour today, talking about these viral videos of police brutality in the context of bearing witness and living in solidarity. I'm joined by Alyssa Richardson, the person behind this poignant new piece in The Atlantic. Richardson is also an assistant professor of journalism at the University of Southern California and the author of Bearing Witness While Black, African Americans, Smartphones, and the New Protest Journalism. Alyssa Richardson, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Yes, thanks very much for being with us. So you begin your piece, as I just read, by talking about the life of Jacob Blake and then addressing the now viral video of him being shot multiple times in the back. And you say, quote, once again, the video has eclipsed the most essential thing to remember about this story that this latest incident of police brutality happened to a human being. Can you talk about what you believe is the effect of these videos and what they depict? Yes, I, I think one of the, the things that gets lost when we have this video is that there are people involved in these. These are folks' parents, and in the case where these incidents become fatal, we're looking at children who have to live with their parents entombed, if you will, online. And as I began to notice this phenomenon of news media really making the story, the video itself, and not delving until much later into who the victim was or the circumstances that could have led to their demise, um, I became very bothered by that. And I was an early proponent of mobile journalism and of its ability to shine a light on these injustices. And I was hopeful in the beginning that showing these videos would finally get the justice that the families were seeking by releasing it. I knew that releasing these videos was in the same spirit uh, that Mamie Till Mobley mm -hmm. uh, actually had her son, Emmett Till, published in Jet Magazine in 1955. She said at that time she wanted the world to see what they did to her baby. And when he was lynched, she made a very difficult decision to show those, those ghastly photographs and really galvanized the civil rights movement here in the U.S. 
And I was looking at many of those videos through that same lens, hoping that they would be a galvanizing point for justice. But as I began to see each police officer uh, being cleared and, and really a civil payout being the only thing that the family could um, expect, these videos took on a different form for me. They became very nefarious, and I saw a lot of the online discourse becoming um, African Americans not want to look at these anymore. And I understood why they didn't want to look. It became very sacrilegious to do so because it seemed like they were participating almost in a digital lynching, if you will. So yeah. earlier this summer, I wrote an essay telling people to elevate these videos to the status of lynching photographs, meaning that if you consider them in that light, then you'll be more careful about their circulation. They'll take on a really solemn form, and they won't be something that we gaze upon while eating our cereal. It won't be something that is looped on television with the casual air of a sports highlight. Really, I'm calling for these videos to be used in a very sacred way. Hmm. And that's not what I was seeing. And so I really wanted to call for it on a national stage for us to reevaluate why we're so comfortable um, looking at black death. Hmm. Black people are the only ones who have to see themselves dying on national TV this way. So so I, I think this is a really fascinating concept, the idea that seeing these videos and seeing them over and over the way we do is somehow devaluing uh, the 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 lives that are being threatened or taken uh, in, in the videos. But I, I also want to talk about how uh, in it's in the last four or five years, really, that we've been able, technology really, has made it able for us to see these videos and to see the things that uh, that police do when before we sort of uh, had to had to just know i mean if you if those of us who are african american of course know of the things that the police do uh, to us but the idea of exposing people who did not know before to what happens to african americans I, I, I want you to talk about balancing the value of that against this damaging devaluation of 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 black life. I mean, if if you did not have these videos, if they did not play as often and frequently as they do, I, I feel like there would be a lot of people who would still doubt that the African American experience in this country is one that. Uh, that has us living in fear of the police as often as we are turning to them uh, for help? Yes, that's a great question. And it's a catch-22 that I really explore and complicate in Bearing Witness While Black. And in the book, I talk about these three overlapping eras of domestic terror, starting with slavery, leading to lynching, and then mutating to what we have now, which is police brutality. And through each of those overlapping eras, you have these black witnesses who are using the technology of their day to shine a light on the human rights injustices that were being meted out against the community. And I talk about during slavery where Frederick Douglass and, and was writing not one, not two, but three autobiographies to let us know what was happening and why he was pushing for abolition. And that gave way to his relationship, his, his friendship and mentorship of Ida B. Wells who then kept a red record 
of lynching, so she was using newspapers and magazines to get the word out. The late John Lewis then picks up that baton as television becomes more popular and becomes a person who really knows how to stage his demonstrations, to time them up with the 15 minutes that he was given for evening news television, because Mm -hmm. there wasn't a 24-hour news cycle. Mm -hmm. And what I found is that through each of those eras, you have uh, a lack of being able to look in real time. And so, for example, whereas slaves couldn't look at each other being punished, lest they would be punished themselves, and there are no black people in the fringes of lynching photographs kind of looking on in the crowd, this is the first time, due to this technology, that black people could bear witness in real time mm-hmm. and say, I'm not going to leave you in this final moment. I'm not going to, I'm going to make sure that people don't make up a story about your demise. I'm going to make sure that people will say your name, and I'm going to carry this message to your family to make sure that you get some kind of justice. So this is why the smartphone has been such a paradigm shift, because instead of seeing something uh, secondhand or hearing about it secondhand through a Douglas autobiography or through a really wrenching story from Ida B. Wells, we're seeing this with our own eyes. And I think that being able to see that, just like it changed the civil rights movement in people's minds and hearts, was essential in reviving this anti-police brutality movement here in the States. And I think that we cannot understate how important this technology has been from Rodney King on. I mean, the the very first time that we see a modern uh, beating on film is by a bystander, George Holiday Mm -hmm. in L.A. Mm -hmm. back in the 90s. But we have, until 2009, um, we didn't have really mediated cases of police brutality. They were hearsay. And as you state, we did know that they were going on in the African-American community. But until 2009, until Oscar Grant, we don't really have, you know, the cell phone footage of these cases. It doesn't mean that we didn't care about it or that we didn't know. For example, we had huge ground swells and huge protests for Sean Bell in New York, for example, or Amadou Diallo in New York. And so this has always been something that African-Americans have dealt with. But again, the cell phone made it immediate and it made it viewing for everyone so that people could really delve into what was going on. But even with this footage, African-Americans began to get traumatized because they're, again, being asked to pre-litigate or prove that they didn't deserve their treatment. So you hear a lot of early talk of, well, we didn't see the entire video, Mm -hmm. so we maybe need more footage, or we don't know what happened before the camera started rolling. And so, again, at the core of this is a, a disbelief for Black people's word. And the, the fact that we needed video in the first place thus proves that uh, Black lives were not valued and that pe- believing Black people in the very first place that police brutality still existed um, became a very painful thing for African-Americans to have to go through to keep producing video after video to show that their loved one did not deserve to die. Either they were in the midst of a mental health episode, as new videos have come out of Rochester just this week, showing that relatives were seeking help for loved ones and didn't get that same help. These videos have been essential in shining a light on how police don't often de-escalate things that are going on with the African-American community when we need help, Mm -hmm. that that lethal force is a go-to. And so, yes, that video has been essential in showing that, 
but when the justice isn't um, rewarded or at least given to the families in the form of police uh, being punished for you know, making that wrong decision, that, that fatal decision, um, these videos take on a more sinister uh, function for African Americans. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Alyssa Richardson, an assistant professor of journalism at the University of Southern California and the author of an article titled Bearing Witness While Black, African Americans, Smartphones and the New Protest Journalism. We're talking about the reaction that we have to the viral videos that we are all bearing witness to of police brutalizing African-Americans, often African-American men, uh, mostly uh, African-American men and women who are unarmed and in many cases uh, ending the lives of those African-Americans. The video of George Floyd, of course, has touched off a national movement like none we have seen before. Uh, And we continue to see videos throughout the summer that remind us of the brutality that African-Americans face from the police. But are these videos dehumanizing to the victims themselves? Do they strip them of the lives that they're living and reduce them to just being victims of systemic racism and violence? And if so, how would we use them differently? How would we employ this unbelievable technology that we now have, which enables us to see things in real time as they happen in a way that would attach more humanity to the victims in these videos. As always, we want to hear from you. Uh, What do you think of these videos that circulate so often? Uh, What do you think about the recent violence that has happened uh, as a result of uh, these videos? If you're a person of color, Give us a call and tell us how these videos make you feel. Do you feel empowered by the fact that now people can actually see what happens, see what the African-American experience is often like when we encounter the police? Or do you agree that these videos and the way that they play over and over again on cable news and on the Internet are stripping the victims of their humanity. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, and uh, you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work those comments into the conversation. Uh, Alyssa Richardson, before we get to listeners, I want to give you a chance to talk about what you would have us do differently if the way that we're using these videos now, if the way that we are consuming the content of these videos now is dehumanizing, uh, what would what would the flip side look like? Uh, you mentioned earlier the idea of putting them in a different context or or relating to them in different ways. I'm curious what your ideas are in that regard. Sure. Uh, an essay that I've written this summer really ad- addresses and gets to the heart of why these videos were necessary in the in the first place. Mm-hmm. And my suggestion that I posed then when I was really just appalled by the looping of Mr. Floyd's video over and over again, um, in many cases I couldn't even show my six- and eight-year-old from them while watching the news, 
uh, was that we return to something that the uh, early 20th century activists did, and that's something called the Shadow Archive. And W.E.B. Du Bois and Ida B. Wells and folks who are the founders of NAACP repurposed the lynching photographs that circulated as celebratory postcards, and they put them in their magazine called The Crisis, and they made sure that people knew about the so-called barbecues, as they were called, to make sure that members were aware of the Southern-style hostility and violence that was meted out against Black people living in the rural South. And what they did was, although they published those photographs, they quickly retired them to something called that shadow archive. And it was reserved for a more contemplative gaze, placed into libraries, newsrooms, and really allowed the victim to be laid to rest. And I think that that is what we need to return to. And a lot of people who argue that maybe that would be difficult to do because of the web and how things circulate on the web, I gave a few clear examples. Mm -hmm. And I think that when white people die, we make sure that we give it the dignity that it deserves. Mm. The final moments of anyone's life are perhaps the most sacred and precious and really don't need to be mediated. And so if we think of white victims who've died, for example, Daniel Pearl, for me as a journalist, his death and his beheading um, that was circulating on the Internet at one point Mm -hmm. was incredibly disturbing and tragic to me. Um, And I was grateful when it finally was removed out of circulation. It's very difficult to find online, if at all. Um, If you think about 9-11 and the victims there, um, many people were forced out of the Twin Towers. We're, we're coming up on that commemorative date. And I think about those victims, and I'm grateful also that I don't have to look at those photographs anymore that used to circulate on the web of the people who were forced out of those buildings. I also think of the number of mediated mass shootings that have affected largely white people here on the West Coast. Um, there was a lot of a video that circulated of the Las Vegas Music Festival, people running for their lives, and it was tragic and, you know, just so awful to watch people falling, never to rise again in those videos. Those have been scrubbed from the Internet. And so the pattern that I began to see was that when white people die, and there is, and they die violently, I should mention, and there's video of it, it is quickly retired to a shadow archive. And I'm calling for black people to get that same treatment, that we realize that there is humanity in those last moments and that it deserves to be uh, retired quickly past that point of everyone knowing what happened. We don't need to keep circulating these things. Mm. And in many, in many times when you do, it strips that person of their humanity and of that those final moments. And it sends, sends that further signal that we don't need to believe black people. We still need that proof. You know, we don't need the video proof to know that Daniel Pearl is no longer with us or that the ones who died in the uh, September 11 attacks many, many years ago are no longer with us. We just believe that something horrible happened that day, something that families will never be able to come back from, Mm. and we don't need that mediated. So let's get to a point where we now know that these things happen to African Americans, and we no longer need the video circulated to get justice. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, 
I'm going to continue my conversation with Alyssa Richardson, and we are going to get your calls. Lola in Dearborn, Tristan in Detroit, Daryl in Southfield. We'll hear from you next. We've also got a number of Twitter comments that we'll want to share. If you want to join the conversation again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. My guest is Alyssa Richardson. She's an assistant professor of journalism at the University of Southern California and author of Bearing Witness While Black, African Americans, Smartphones, and the New Protest Journalism. We're talking about the effect that the viral videos that we see of police brutalizing African American men and women what effect do they have on our consciousness in this country? Do they make us more aware of the experience that we as African-Americans uh, endure as victims of systemic racism and police brutality and all the other things that the Black Lives Matter movement is drawing attention to? Or do they dehumanize us because they reduce us to victims of this violence and don't take in all the other experiences. Uh, we really want to hear from you. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, as always. I want to start with uh, Tristan uh, Taylor, who is a community organizer with Detroit Will Breathe and has been one of the people helping to lead the Detroit protests against police brutality. Uh, Tristan, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, good morning. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm curious of your reaction to uh, Alyssa's argument here. Yeah, um, you know, uh, I'll just start off by saying that I have yet to watch the full video of George Floyd's murder hmm. um, because it's just too much for me. The description was good enough because there's a way in which I've seen that video a thousand times, right? Or mm -hmm. a video similar to it. Um, but the tragic reality is um, the dehumanization of our experience uh, began before the video mm -hmm. was shot. It was began in a society that allowed for that dehumanization to go uh, without uh, justice being followed. Um, because for the white victims, um, no one questions justice for them. Um, and that's why they could be put to rest. Uh, but for us, um, that is something that isn't uh, the case. Mm. Um, and if not for black people, um, those videos, um, um, and not just those videos alone, um, need to be highlighted, but also our actions against it. I, I think people were just as much um, uh, put into action by the response of the people in Minneapolis to George Floyd's death as much as his death. Hmm. Um, so being able to also not lose f fat um, and, and, you know, um, fight, to not lose sight of the ways in which people resist to get justice 
um, I think that's the way in which we bring back the humanity uh, that we so often uh, have lost or taken away from us. Yeah. Tristan, I really appreciate uh, your thoughts here, and I really love that you called uh, to be part of this conversation. You know, uh, Alyssa Richardson, it's really moving to me that Tristan says he has not been able to watch the George Floyd video. I, of course, have uh, more than once. And, you know, there's something about, for me, um, there's something about, I think, maybe uh, being a journalist, uh, being someone who has a lot of intellectual curiosity that that makes me want to see it, that makes me want to know and witness firsthand what what happened. But I hear uh, in in his voice the, the the pain of of course having having done it and and I think for for all African Americans and also for many other people there is that pain there is that uh, that uh, that identifying I guess with with Floyd uh, the anger about the reactions of the police officers the look on the police officer's face as he has his knee on George Floyd's neck. Um, I mean, these these are traumatic experiences. And I guess uh, from my perspective, they are part of they are part of the currency, I guess, that we pay to be to be part of the conversation and crusaders for change. Um, But it's not without a cost. Absolutely. I, I really identified with and loved what Jacob Blake's sister said last week about saying his name along with saying that he is a son and a father and a brother. And the fact that she called his humanity into question and said that we need to remember that is an essential part of this. And I think that her call was something that made me realize that I wasn't the only one who had trepidation about looking at these videos. She also said in her her press conference that this has been happening to her family for a long time. Mm. And at first I thought, well, to whom has this happened before? You know, who else in her family has this uh, occurred? But then she went on to mention the names that we all know, Alton Sterling, Philando Castillo, Sandra Bland, and she named them as her own family. And I think this is a unique thing for the African-American community where we see each other as family, as extended family. And so when we see these videos of people lying on the ground, they're not just people in videos. They look like folks that we know. It could very easily be our dad or our uncle Mm -hmm. or our sister in many cases. And I think it's very difficult, especially when we do not have video, uh, for us to even uh, begin to explain to other people how deeply that hurts. For example, a lot of the cases that involve women do not have video, but it, but they still resonate. If you think about Breonna Taylor, for example, and how many people heard that story and did not need video to then rally around her and rally around her family, um, I think it becomes clear that when we look at these videos, we're looking with a very different gaze. And that's why in the, in the book I call it black witnessing, because there's a difference. White witnessing was what people were doing when they were taking those lynching photographs, when they were taking those pictures. Mm-hmm. That's the reason why the third person, for example, in the Ahmaud Arbery case was arrested for being there and filming it. Um, that gaze is different. It's usually a gloating one. 
and it's a celebration for uh, white supremacists who dare to look in that space. For black people, though, it's a really solemn and uh, grave space where we really think about our extended family and what could happen to them and the system that we find ourselves living in. Yeah, yeah. Again, Tristan, thanks very much for calling in today. Let's go to Daryl in Southfield. Daryl, what's on your mind? Hey, Stephen. Uh, great show. Great topics, uh, as always, and great conversation. Thank you. Um, but but I want to start off by saying that there should have been a national uproar years ago about uh, police brutality, especially regarding video. Mm-hmm. This is not some new phenomenon. And I'm referring to the Rodney King video. Now, how long ago was that video? Rodney mm-hmm. King was beat worse than a dog. Mm-hmm. The officers, they took turns. They took breaks. Multiple officers. They beat him worse than a dog. Mm-hmm. And you saw the videotape. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the officers, they, they were doing it so casually. Okay, and then afterwards, they went to the hospital to tease him about the video. But there was a segment of society that could care less about videos then, and they don't care about them now. So, uh, so this is not some new phenomenon. But again, uh, I mean, as far as, uh, again, the jury there, they basically said that the officers were not at fault. Right. That yeah. Rodney King was at fault. They said that he again, was... If, if, they said that he was beat, in control of the of the situation. Right. That, that, yeah. Right. You know what? And if you were to beat a dog like that, you would go to jail for cruelty to animals. So, so Daryl, I mean, I, I I can't disagree with almost anything you're saying here, um, but but I do wanna I do wanna push a little on the idea that there's no difference between Rodney King, which is now almost thirty years ago. That's hard to believe, but yes, that's right. It's almost 30 years ago. And what we're seeing now with George Floyd or or Jacob Blake, I mean, yes, when the officers in King's case were acquitted, there was a real response in Los Angeles. I mean, an uprising against that verdict. But there was nothing on the scale of what we've seen this summer. Uh, I've said this before uh, on the show. I read some reporting recently that um, that more people have now participated in this summer's activism than in any social movement in the history of this nation. So if you take in suffrage, if you take in civil rights, the anti-war movements, none of them have been larger than the demonstrations that we've seen so far. So so 30 years on, 30 years after Rodney King, I'm, I guess I'm not certain that I would say there, there's the same response. I mean, it's not, it's not an adequate response, and obviously we want what we want is f- for the killings to stop. We want police to stop brutalizing African Americans. But the response to it is is different over over time. Alyssa Richardson, I wonder what you what you make of the progress or I guess the change over over that thirty years. Yeah, one thing I explained I used to explain to my students is that there are these cycles, these really disturbing cycles that when black people have a successful social justice movement, there's an immediate backlash to it and the punishment becomes harsher, and we see white supremacy mutate and really turn into something else. And so I give the example that at the end of a very successful campaign to end slavery, 
the Reconstruction era is really defined by this uprising of violence, this this uh, birth of lynching, if you will. And the media follows suit. In many cases, the news media and entertainment media have always done the bidding in terms of, of dehumanizing black people and sending that message of otherness out to the general public. And so at the end of that time, you see lynching on the rise because you have a very reluctant public that didn't want to embrace African-American citizenship, let alone vie for those same economic resources in the New South. And so you have the great migration where many folks are moving north to places like Detroit to make sure that their families are safe and that they can find work. And so another one of the instances that I give my students is at the very end of a very successful civil rights campaign, 1964, where we have our Civil Rights Act signed and uh, enfranchisement being given to black people um, after a very hundred-year-long fight, um, you immediately have this war on drugs, which which pops up mm-hmm. in terms of this backlash to black people getting rights and finally getting to have some measure of equality and citizenship that was promised to them at the end of Reconstruction. Mind you, 1865 was the end of the Civil War. 1964 was when blacks were enfranchised in this country. So almost 100 years of fighting mm-hmm. and enduring that, that brand of violence in the form of lynching, which was never outlawed, by the way, uh, is something that black people had to deal with. And as we kind of look at how white supremacy and black activism continue to mutate, police brutality then picks up and really does the, the work of enforcing that uh, war on drugs. And so as many activists and scholars have already identified, like Michelle Alexander and Ava DuVernay and Hillstone 13th, mm-hmm. we see a huge rise in mass incarceration at a time when black people were just getting their rights and should have been having their seat at the table, and really realizing the full meaning of what being an American means. And so we are still dealing with that fallout of these these cycles of immense joy and celebration from a social justice campaign carried out very well to then a backlash to that to make sure that African-Americans still remain in their essential place or station, if you will, um, which was always designed to be at the bottom. And although we continue to try to rise and fight through all of those things, uh, white supremacy continued to uh, change forms and become more colorblind, if you will, become more cloaked in, in language that we didn't even understand um, in terms of, of being so coded that it was not outright anymore calling us out of our names, but making it seem like we were the ones who were guilty or, or deserving of our own demise. Right. Um, and that, that is what has disturbed me most, is that we've been successful every single time we fought, but it's never been without consequence or backlash. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think about the potential, I suppose, for backlash to what we've seen this summer, we're already starting to see some of it unfold. Uh, mm-hmm. This Kyle Rittenhouse uh, yep. who, who travels across state lines with an automatic weapon to, to quote unquote, uh, keep the peace during uh, protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin and kills two people. I think there there is almost a hair trigger kind of response in in some parts of our society right now to the idea of black liberation of black pushing back against 
the things that uh, that we are seeing happen to our community. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Alyssa Richardson, and we will continue to hear from you as well. Leon in Southfield, Cindy in the Cass Corridor, and Lola in Dearborn. We'll get to your calls. Also get to some Twitter comments, and if you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. My guest is Alyssa Richardson. She's an assistant professor of journalism at the University of Southern California and author of Bearing Witness While Black, African Americans, Smartphones, and the New Protest Journalism. We're talking about what effect the viral videos that we're seeing of police brutalizing African Americans have on American consciousness, do they bring our attention to the systemic racism that African Americans endure in this country, or do they do more to dehumanize us as African Americans, reducing us to just the victims of systemic racism and violence? We want to hear from you this hour as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313 313- Five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to Facebook and to Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Lola in Dearborn. Lola, welcome to the show. Hi, uh, hi, uh, Stephen. How are you? Good. How are you? Okay. My comment is, and I've had this on my mind forever. I live in Dearborn. It's very prejudiced here. It always mm-hmm. will be, mm-hmm. but it's not going to stop me. I own my house for almost 50 years here, and I don't ever intend to go so they can get a, get over it. But anyway, the police here, they're very uh, intimidated by black men. Mm-hmm. And I won't say all Caucasians are intimidated. I'm talking about men that are intimidated by black men, but several of them are, and they've always have been. But they colorblind it on and on. And, I, and when I see it, I confront it because I'm extremely outspoken <laughs> and I may not stand. I'm, I mean, I'm about five, two, but you think that I'm 10 feet tall when I get through <laughs> with shedding it down. Mm. And so I've always did that. And so it's just one of those things that when I see it, I deal with it. You don't have a suit on. You're just a man to me when you're intimidated by a chap. I call them chaps, you know, chaps are chaps. Mm -hmm. But when you're intimidated by somebody that has to grow up and you're trying to intimidate it, when I see it, I will not let that happen. It's crazy to me to groan. But I saw that, that uh, policemen and most Caucasian men, not all of them, and not all policemen, but some are intimidated, straight up intimidated with black young men sure, and men anyway. And when you're a smart woman, yes, people are intimidated with you for real. Yeah. And that, and like I say, 
I'm a psychiatrist, so don't let me have to put the test on anyone <laughs> that's intimidated with me. It will not work. Right. And so, so well, Stephen, right. I, I thank you so much for being who you are, yeah, sure. for giving us a platform to talk about it for real. Sure. So sure. like I say, have a good day. Take care of yourself. You too. Because I'm sure you stood the test of time with this too. <laughs> but anyway, God bless you. Well, I really, as always, love uh, love that you listen and uh, appreciate the the call. Thanks very much for those thoughts. Let's go to Cindy in the Cass Corridor. Cindy, what's on your yeah, mind? Uh, hey. Yeah, can you hear me? I can. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, yeah, you probably remember, Stephen, that, that when they two women were fighting at the fireworks, one was down on the ground and the other one was kicking them, and they showed mm-hmm. that video mm-hmm. every half hour on mm-hmm. TV. That's I when do. I had TV. And I, I was uh, one of my a fellow electricians said, "I'll never bring my wife down to out anymore." And so that that was years and years ago. I think uh, probably '88 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing that worries me too, though, is imitation, because you know, from psychology, people imitate. So I don't think that playing something over and over is going to uh, decrease the amount of white supremacists that look at that and say, you know, I can I can be famous too. I'll go out. That it's giving like that. people that it's giving people it's, ideas. Is, uh, yeah, is, think, well, it's point. it's imitation. They yeah. see that over and over, and I think uh, it is kind of. I mean, when you think about when I was growing up, we had comedy on TV, and then they went to Miami Vice and started showing all this violent stuff. Uh, the crime did increase. Oh. Cindy, uh, I, you know, I, I really the, appreciate. The other thing, I, I, the police lie, and you know, if you heard that interview that was taken off of one of the legal observers when they, they were marching down Woodward and they claimed that they were going to try and take over Woodward like Seattle. Yeah. Oh, they can't stay out. I mean, we, when we had uh, Cindy, I think your uh, your phone is giving out that on was, us. That uh, Cindy, I really appreciate the call and uh, the thoughts. Alyssa Richardson, I want to get you to react to this idea of imitation. In other words, I I think as African-Americans, we think that that, that these videos of police brutalizing us might give people more awareness of the experience that we're having and more motivation to push back, back against it. But as Cindy points out, for some folks, it, it, it's a reinforcement of their worldview in the first place and this idea that uh, they might imitate that behavior or come to believe that, that it's okay is a real danger as well. Mm-hmm. I think one of the, the things that I was most disturbed by um, in 2012 was when Trayvon Martin died, that teenagers who didn't look like me or Trayvon, posed on the ground and created this meme called Trayvoning, mm-hmm. where they had hoodies on and they mocked his death down to having Skittles and Arizona iced tea on the ground next to them. And that Trayvoning meme took hold and became a joke to young white kids. And I think that it started again this summer, where I began to see many platforms, and, and gratefully they caught it and were able to stamp it out. But there was George Floyd memes also where they had um, several white men who were reenacting the scene with a buddy. Um, And I think that that kind of of meme-making 
um, when people see that, initially you thought the video would be something that people would use to seek justice, but when it becomes mocking or a sort, a sort of ridicule um, that is laced in the celebration again, that's when we see that these videos serve a dual function for many people. Um, especially, I talk a lot about this with my colleagues at the journalism school, is that black people see themselves in these videos, but white people maybe don't. Mm. A lot of the white colleagues that I've talked to, a lot of my friends at the school, have said, I don't identify with either the victim or the aggressor. Mm. So where, where does that leave me? I would never do this to someone. Most of the, the white friends that I've had have talked to said, I would never imagine myself putting a knee at someone's neck until they died. So for me, I feel badly because I have been watching these things while having my morning coffee because I'm detached from it in a way. I'm desensitized uh, from it. And when I heard that perspective of neither being the aggressor nor the victim, I thought, well, these videos really aren't uh, serving the purpose that I thought they would initially. And that's why I became even more staunch about this this, um, opinion that they need to be retired quickly so that the dead can rest and that their children don't have to see these videos over and over and over again online. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks again for the call and the comments, uh, Cindy. Let's go to Leon in Southfield. Leon, yeah, the thank show. you. How are you this morning? I'm this good. is Leon from Ypsilanti, however, but it doesn't <laughs> okay. matter. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Great show, man. A great topic, as I indicated to your screener. Uh, I take a different uh, perspective. I mean, I want to look at the historical view. Mm-hmm. You know, African Americans initially were not viewed as humans. They were viewed as what three fifths of a human property. So yeah. you yeah. you have this subconsciously etched in the minds of Caucasians, and so when they, in my opinion, when they are confronted or they can confront uh, African Americans subconsciously that's in their mind they're really not human because to shoot a person seven times we could go on and on and on it's not humane right i mean you wouldn't i wouldn't do an animal like that i wouldn't do a dog like that and so uh i think white folks are really not all they, they they are victims in and of themselves and so therefore to justify their behavior, they have to lie to themselves, mm. i.e., they're not really human. They're, we're better than they are, so this gives me a right, or I can justify whatever I want to do. And then they say, well, black folks can't get past what happened. Well, I think most black folks are past that. you got a video showing us an injustice, not once, not twice, but on several occasions, and then we go to the court of law, yeah. and we don't get justice. Yeah. So what, I mean, what do folks I, have to stand on? I, I, but, I, but when we look at, historically, the actions of these folks, I mean, burning down a town when they knew that a black man didn't rape a woman. Right. They burned down that whole town. I forget where it was, but and, I mean, just numerous occasions where they have looted, rioted, burned yeah. cities down, and it's almost like they're shocked that they're seeing this. And yeah. I don't advocate 
Leon, losing and riding. My yeah. point is, yeah, no, I get it. How easily we forget. And yeah. I'll listen to your guests. I hear you. I absolutely you. hear what you're saying, Lee. I appreciate the call and the and the comments. This this whole uh, this whole question, Alyssa, of the consequence that doesn't often befall uh, white police officers or other white perpetrators of violence against uh, African Americans is, as Leon points out, one of the roots of the problem. Uh, these videos, I think might be seen or might be able to be seen in a really different context if there was more value attached to black life and if you took black life the way these police officers did and suffered appropriate consequences for it, um, it we might be having a different conversation. Absolutely. And if we think we're of where a lot of these cases are taking place, um, most of the cities were thriving black cities. And I think that at one point in history, again, when we think about the cycle of backlashes, I think about cities like Detroit, which were bustling areas mm-hmm. for African-Americans, especially the African-American middle class. Mm-hmm. And the fact that police have been used historically to stamp out that kind of prosperity uh, is very disturbing. You think about places like Tulsa and you think about uh, places and what could have been uh, had police not controlled or really clamped down on black mobility and movement and and life. Um, you, you you wonder why these things were these forces were put in place in the in the first place. And yeah. I think that the root of policing we can't ignore its root is in slave patrol. And as it mutated and grew up, so to speak, to these militarized forces that we now see in many American cities, we have to remember its roots were always designed to control black movement and black upward mobility specifically. So when I think about places like Detroit and I think about the legacy of police brutality that's happened there and has even received Hollywood treatment Mm -hmm. in Detroit. we can't divorce that from the, the legacy and history of policing's origins. Yes. And that's why we have people calling for it to be defunded. Yeah. Okay, Alyssa Richardson, it was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Mm-hmm. That's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow when we're going to talk about the economy during the pandemic, specifically the gig economy. Author Juliet Shore says... The gig economy has been hijacked, and we've got to win it back. We'll also have a conversation about personal finance during this economic crisis, so you'll want to join us. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.